0: We probably pressed on some buttons for those of you who were like, whoa, uh, we can't do the God rest you merry gentlemen thing. It is December 31st, and others of you, your hearts leapt with joy because you're, you're the among the crowd that says, as long as it's December, baby, it is Christmas. And so the church rarely comes in the direction of that second crowd in services like this, so you are welcome. Merry Christmas all over again. Um, the, the second thing that came to mind for me was... Um, Bless your souls. May God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you for showing up in this place this morning in the midst of all the circumstances that have kept, could have kept you out of this place. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but um, there were predictions that this would be the lowest attended Sunday for churches Uh, across the states uh, for 2017, and not only 2017, some were saying uh, for the millennium thus far. And so uh, a three-day weekend, you could have flown to Vegas uh, to celebrate the new year. It's 30 degrees out there, which is just insane. Most of your cars were probably in the teens temperature-wise until they warmed up when you got in them to come here this morning. So um, thank you for doing that. I I was reminded uh, just a few moments ago of how insecure of a man I actually am. Um, because my heart uh, still does get attached to um, whether or not people show up in this place. You know who's incredibly secure? The God of the universe. Um, God knew before the foundations of the world what this day would look like, and and I fully anticipate and expect God to do what he loves to do, what we talked about on Christmas Eve, which is to show himself strong through apparent weakness, to flex on this day, uh, when churches are least attended, to break the greatest chains in our hearts, to awaken us out of our slumbers this morning, um, If you're joining us for the first time uh, and and you're wondering where are we what are we going to dive into this morning uh, we are currently working our way through the book of hebrews as a church we've been in the book of hebrews since august Um, We're in a series entitled Jesus is Greater, and the reason for that series title is that the author of Hebrews has gone to great lengths, and he will continue to do so for the remaining chapters of this book of the Bible to show us just how supremely glorious Jesus really is. Um, He declares Jesus to be the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of God's nature, the creator and sustainer of all things, greater than than the angels, superior to fallen man, superior to Moses. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This book of the Bible presents us with a view of Jesus uh, that would call into question anyone who would declare Jesus to be nothing more than a good teacher or a wise philosopher. The author of Hebrews declares Jesus to be the perfect and final sacrifice for sin the mediator of a greater covenant with God established in his very own blood, the exalted high priest of heaven who intercedes on behalf of the very ones that he died for. The author of Hebrews intends for us to behold the superior son of God in such a way that that you and I are changed by that very beholding. And so my prayer is that each and every one of us would walk away changed this morning as we put a bow on 2017 And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning, uh, verses 19 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, Take that Bible with you if you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand as a late Christmas gift from Crosspoint. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray, and, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, you were splendid, majestic, glorious, gracious, and good yesterday. You are splendid, majestic, glorious, gracious, and good today, and you will be the same God tomorrow when we turn the page of the calendar to 2018. Uh, thank you, God, that you never change. You are always the one and same God that you were, that you are, that you will be. Um, we desperately need you this morning. Uh, to awaken our slumbering hearts uh, just like the heaters in our car woke up earlier today for us very slowly uh, without the power of your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts, in our minds to awaken us on this blustery day? Uh, would, you, would you break chains? Would you uh, move? Would you uh, show yourself to be strong this morning? Would you flex in our lives? God, would you comfort the afflicted and would you afflict the comfortable through Uh, your very word this morning. God, I thank you that uh, you did not determine that the canon of Scripture as it pertains to Hebrews chapter 10 would stop with verse 18 and move straight on into chapter 11, but you intended for these very verses that we're going to look at this morning to be a part of the canon of Scripture, just like all the other verses. God, you have something for us this morning. Would you reveal that to us by your Spirit? we love you. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to gather as your bride to make much of the groom, Jesus Christ. Uh, we lift these things up in his name. Amen. So if you have been around for, for the course of this series thus far, uh, the author of Hebrews uh, has, has been after something for roughly nine and a half chapters. Namely, He sought to put on display in all of its fullness the goodness, glory, and grace of Jesus Christ. He wants us to behold this Jesus. I gave this illustration. uh, I've given it numerous times in this series. Uh, When we were uh, back in October, my family and I, we went to the beach, and uh, we were walking on the beach one evening, and and my oldest daughter looked up and saw the moon for the first time, not in a a storybook, not on a screen as a part of a movie or a TV show, but, but the real moon and she lost her mind in that moment just screaming loudly in an embarrassing fashion for us daddy daddy it's the moon it's the moon look daddy do you see it it's the moon and we looked up and we we gazed and we basked in wide-eyed wonder that evening and i thought that that was over you know i thought we were going to move on to the next thing uh, because kids get very easily bored and the very next evening the same thing we were walking on the beach and she looks up daddy it's the moon I know, baby, we did that yesterday. Uh, and, and, and for her, though she can't speak these words, it was as if with her eyes looking at me, she was like, but it's today, it's not yesterday. It's time to behold yet again. That for the first nine and a half chapters has been what the author of Hebrews has been attempting to get us to do with respect to Jesus Christ, to behold Jesus in such a way that, that we're affected, that we're changed by that very beholding. As we dive into this morning's passage we we now get a glimpse at what the beholding of jesus is meant to bring about in the hearts and lives of god's people what is that beholding meant to do uh, in our lives in our hearts verse 19 we pick up with a critical word therefore Therefore, in light of everything we've been talking about up to this point regarding Jesus, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. All right, let me just, let me stop there for a second. According to the author of Hebrews, two things are true for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, who are united to him by faith. Number one, and we've talked about these things before, We can have confidence to enter God's presence because the veil has been torn. Verses 19 and 20. And number two, we have a perfect high priest who ministers for us in heavenly places. That's verse 21. That's the thesis of the book of Hebrews. That we have a high priest who ministers for the church. If you're a Christian, that's you. We have a high priest who ministers for us in heavenly places as we journey on this pilgrimage toward the eternal promised land, the new heaven and earth. That kind of grace is meant to overwhelm us. By the blood of jesus think about this you can confidently approach the perfect majestic holy god of the universe and not be incinerated in an instant and that very same jesus ministers for you in the true tabernacle of heaven even in, in, in when it's unseen in your life for the author of hebrews that kind of overwhelming grace warrants a response he says Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, the phrase let us is used three times in these verses. There's, there's a threefold appropriate response to God's grace as revealed in the book of Hebrews. Let us draw near the true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. Let, let's take each of those three let us statements one at a time. First of all, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. It, if all that the author of Hebrews has been saying for nine and a half chapters is actually true, then we can draw near to the living God. And not sheepishly or timidly, we can and should draw near in full assurance of of faith. You can have full assurance. All of these glorious truths that we've been talking about for nine and a half chapters now are meant to create that in you, a full assurance. You can declare yes to all that we barely scratched the surface with respect to in the first nine and a half chapters of this series. In Christ, you've been made pure, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You might say, even when I don't feel pure, you're telling me that's true? Yep, because your purity in the eyes of God is really not your purity, but Jesus's purity on your behalf. That's what the gospel declares, and he never ceases to be pure. Because of the finished priestly work of Jesus on our behalf, we can with full assurance, with full assurance, with full assurance, draw near to God in worship, in prayer, and in faith. Secondly, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering not only are we to confidently draw near to the throne of grace if what the author of hebrews has been saying for nine and a half chapters is true but we're also to unwaveringly hold fast the confession of our hope our hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness we sing it all the time around here that's never not the confession of the church Our hope is in the Lord, and that's not a foolish hope, because verse 23, he who promised is faithful. Paul in in Ephesians 2 um, describes separation from Jesus as, quote, having no hope and without God in the world. But for Christians, it's very different. We have hope even when our souls are downcast. If you were around uh, the, the beginning of 2017, the, the the calendar year we're about to close the books on. Um, we began this year with a uh, a sermon where we spent time in Psalm chapter 42 verse 11, talking about what it means to preach the gospel to yourself uh, in the everyday rhythms of life. And the psalmist, as he's preaching the gospel to himself, he says, "Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in tur- turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation." And my God Jesus Christ is the true hope for the downcast soul I don't know what 2017 has looked like for you as you as you look back and you contemplate what this year has brought about circumstantially in your life uh, for some of you you would go man this was a glorious year uh, such that I'm not excited to turn the page on 2018 because I just love to repeat this year all over again and for others of us maybe you come in this morning and you're going man I'm filled with with bitterness, with anxiety, with sadness, with frustration. And according to Psalm 42, even in that, Jesus is our hope. He's the hope for the downcast soul. We have hope as Christians, even in the grieving of death. I've preached this verse at, at a couple of funerals now. First uh, Thessalonians 4:13, Paul says, "But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have passed away." That you may not grieve as others who do, uh, who do, who have no hope. That if you're a Christian, we can grieve the loss of our Christ following loved ones in a spirit of hope. If you've lost someone this year that's close to you, take heart. Know that you, you have hope in Christ. God who promises faithful, the author of Hebrews says. Thus, we never have to fear our hope being misplaced in Jesus. Isn't that good news? In fact, Jesus is our ultimate hope, according to the author of Hebrews. If you go back to chapter 6, remember the author said, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's talking about Jesus there. There's your ultimate assurance. Jesus is the faithful anchor of the soul who secures our hope. An anchor capable of holding us in the fiercest storm that this world could possibly hurl in our direction. As we've said before in this series, the anchor of Jesus Christ holds. Let me bring those words back up again that we've looked at before. Uh, The hymn writer Daniel Towner in 1902 said, I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between... Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide, and it holds, my anchor holds. So blow your wildest then, O Gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. Because of the finished priestly work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we have all the reason we need to fight to remain steadfast in him as our ultimate hope. That doesn't change when 2018 rolls around. Thirdly, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Not only are we to confidently draw near to the throne of grace, if everything the author of Hebrews has been saying for nine and a half chapters is true, not only are we to unwaveringly hold fast the confession of our hope, we're also to embrace the church as a means of God's grace. The the book of Hebrews does not endorse isolationist Christianity. The book of Hebrews does not endorse the phrase, give me Jesus, but not the church. Um, Some embrace the the view of Jesus as essential and the church as optional, but that's not the view of the author of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews endorses the church as essential, as is Jesus, a community of believers who are committed to Jesus and to one another. As he says, stirring up one another to love and good works, which, which means being involved in the lives of others within the church so that we know how to do the appropriate stirring, contextually speaking not neglecting to meet together, which meant a particular contextual way of meeting for the church on the receiving end of this letter back in the first century, which for us contextually means fighting to be present as we gather in this space, fighting to be present as we scatter in homes throughout the community, as we gather in community groups, fighting for those form-fitted gospel alliance type of relationships in our lives. And if none of that makes sense, go back and listen to the Cross Point Together series from back in August where we unpacked our strategy as a church, and hopefully that will help to bring some clarity to what we mean by those various uh, gatherings and environments for living this out. According to verse 25 it's interesting. Neglecting to meet together can, can even go from sporadic to habitual. He uses that, that language in verse 25. That verse 25 presents us with the opportunity to ask the question, is it my habit to meet with the church? Is it my habit to assemble with the church in the various env- environments established for my good and the good of others? Or is it my habit to neglect such meeting, such assembling? I find it ironic that that's The verse that we're looking at this morning on what's been predicted to be the lowest attended Sunday in the millennium. Isn't that strange? Tomorrow, as as we turn the page on 2017 and stare 2018 in the face, tomorrow marks the dawning of a new year. And thus, the opportunity to, to make some changes, to make some tweaks as it pertains to our response to God's grace. Perhaps one of the best things that that you could do, you and your family, um, I'm certainly bringing this before my own family as we turn the page on 2017, is to embrace with more intentionality than ever before the habit of meeting with God's people, the habit of assembling with God's people, not just here, but in the various environments that God has given us by his grace. Um, Because I have a feeling that if God includes such things in his word, There must be some glory for him in it and some joy for us in it in embracing those habits. He says encouraging one another, which means, again, being involved in one another's lives so that we know how to properly encourage. Encouragement is not not one size fits all. We, We all need to be encouraged uniquely based on what we're facing in life. And notice how the two go together, how meeting together and encouraging one another are deeply interconnected. Notice the contrast in the language between not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. That when we neglect the opportunities provided to share our lives with others in the church, we rob ourselves and others of the encouragement needed to persevere in the faith. If you've been looking at the book of Hebrews going, how do we do this thing? How do we fight the good fight of faith? Part of the answer to that is found in this very passage in living out this one another life. There's a call here in these verses to press into the church. Embrace the church as a gift. That, that's my hope for um, the next four weeks. We're going to shift into, we're going to take a break from Hebrews for four weeks. We'll come back around to it at the beginning of February. But we're going to do a four week series on the church. We're going to talk about uh, all of the implications of, of the church that we can possibly look at from a higher altitude. And we're even going to create space. We're going to get technologically savvy a little bit and create an opportunity for you to text in questions that you might have about the church at large, about Crosspoint, Peachtree City specifically, and we're going to carve out some space during that series each week to answer some of those questions. Um, And so my hope is that you'll engage in that as a response even to Hebrews chapter 10 that as we move into 2018, that more than ever we will see the church as, as both a means of God's grace and a vehicle for His glory. Notice Notice that this threefold response of God's grace in the book of Hebrews, the three let us statements, perfectly capture the three greatest Christian values of faith, hope, and love. You see that? It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. If you found yourself at some point in this series thinking or asking, where are we going to get past all this beholding Jesus stuff in the book of Hebrews? What, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that it's in the very seeing and savoring of Jesus Christ that we find our faith strengthened, our hope resolved, bolstered, and our love for God and others expanded. Those are some pretty Incredibly encouraging reasons to keep fighting to see and savor Jesus, like my daughter beheld the moon on the beach night in and night out. But again, you'll, you'll recall from our time in chapter 6, if you were here for that part of this series, the author of Hebrews doesn't just use promises to spur us on to fight the good fight of faith. He also uses warnings. Come, coming back to a quote from a few weeks ago, John Piper says it this way. He says, God's way to keep us from falling is by enticing us with promises And sobering us with warnings. The point of the promises is to engage our affections for the eternal glory of God. The point of the warnings is to disengage our affections from the perishing glory of this world. The point of the promises is to make our mouths water at the prospect of infinite happiness in God. And the point of the warnings is to make our hearts tremble at the prospect of falling under the wrath of God. And so the warnings of the Bible support our assurance. We see another of those extremely weighty warnings here in chapter 10. It says this, beginning in verse 27. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's going back to the Old Testament again there. Verse 29, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, that's pretty heavy, right? That, that's just as heavy if not heavier, than the warning in chapter 6 that we looked at a few weeks ago as a church. What's at stake in these verses is not simply fatherly discipline and heavenly rewards. We're talking about eternal judgment. Look at verse 27. He says, A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That, that sounds a lot like the destiny of the fruitless farmland that we talked about back in chapter 6. That according to the author of Hebrews, this is the destiny of those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is the destiny of those who trample underfoot the Son of God. This is the destiny of those who profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. This is the destiny of those who outrage the Spirit of grace. And these are sobering words, which I'm sure brings up the question for many of us who are not around for Chapter 6. Is it possible for a born-again follower of Jesus Christ to do such things as are described in these verses and experience such a tragic destiny? I'm going to follow the train of thought that I brought to the table when we looked at chapter 6, which means I'm going to reiterate some things that maybe you've heard before, maybe you agree with, maybe you don't agree with, um, but I think that's the best way for me to be consistent here and to bring together all the pieces in, in some sort of cohesive manner as it pertains to looking at the book at large. And so the question, is it possible for a born-again follower of Jesus Christ to do such things as are described in verses 26 through 31 and experience such a tragic destiny? Uh, As I said in chapter 6 when we were there, my answer to that question is no. I'll explain the why behind that in a moment. Um, But first of all, I think it's important going back to, to something I said a few weeks ago to establish a distinction, first of all. Um, that though many have good intentions in using the language of once saved, always saved, I'm not sure that's the most helpful language that the church has embraced along the way. That kind of language has uh, a way of encouraging people to spend the bulk of their time looking back in the rearview mirror, um, focusing on the authenticity of a past tense profession of faith at the expense of present tense perseverance in faith. It can and oftentimes does create a culture of of. Uh, what's known as easy believism, this idea that as long as I can point back to an authentic conversion experience, it matters very little how I live in the present. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you're one who believes that a Christ follower can lose his or her salvation, and part of your frustration is the present tense apathy that exists in the church, a, a present tense sluggishness of heart that keeps pointing back to a past tense profession of faith, you and I share that frustration together. And so does the author of Hebrews. It's the very thing that, that for chapters now he's been strongly warning against. Spiritual drift. A neglect of such a great salvation. Dullness of hearing. Sluggishness of heart. The book of Hebrews is at its very core an exhortation to persevere to keep fixing our eyes on the superior Son of God, to keep uh, seeing and savoring Jesus. It's it's the call to do what my daughter did on night number two and night number three and night number four uh, with her toes in the sand, to keep seeing and savoring, to keep beholding Jesus and seeing him as glorious. I mentioned back in chapter 6 that I'm personally... Uh, Theologically speaking, an adherent of the doctrine commonly referred to as the perseverance of the saints, it's a two-part doctrine that states the following. Number one, all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere to the end. That Practically, uh, everyone who believes that you cannot lose your salvation would affirm the first part of this doctrine. However, the second part of the doctrine is just as critical. It helps to make sense of of every single warning passage that we've seen along the way in the book of Hebrews. It's not just that all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere to the end. But the second part of the doctrine says only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. That our, our perseverance, to use that farmland imagery in chapter six, our perseverance in the faith is the fruit in the field that shows the soil of our hearts to be truly alive. Uh, I I presented a very preliminary set of arguments uh, in support of of this very doctrine uh, back in chapter 6. I don't have time to go there again this morning, so if you weren't here for that sermon, uh, I would commend that podcast to you. Um, I said this also when we were in chapter 6. If you really want to get deep in the weeds, I can send you a 76-page scholarly article on the arguments for um, the various uh, doctrinal Uh, distinctives that kind of come out of these warning passages in Hebrews. So shoot me an email, and I'll shoot you a 76-page term paper, and you can dive into that to start the new year. But one thing that I do think is important to address here, in chapter 10 specifically, what do you do with the strong language of having received the knowledge of the truth? What, What do you do with the strong language of having been sanctified by the blood of the covenant? This again, I say it all the time around here, is why I think context is so critically important. Um, the, the author of Hebrews over and over again takes us back to the Old Testament, to the, the wilderness-wandering generation of Israel coming out of Egypt, making their way toward Canaan, to, to make his point about us, the church, as the second wilderness-wandering generation on pilgrimage toward the eternal promised land. Going back to that example of wilderness wandering Israel as a covenant community if you think about you go back to the old testament the Israelites received the knowledge of the truth by way of the ten commandments we see that even in verse 28 of this morning's passage The Israelites, as a covenant community, were sanctified. They were set apart by God as a people on pilgrimage to that very promised land. Yet the author of Hebrews tells us the tragic tale of what happened to the majority of those people on pilgrimage. They hardened their hearts in rebellion and they died in the desert. The author of Hebrews has addressed that on more than one occasion up to this point. And and sure, some of those who died were a people who, by faith, had righteousness credited to them, um, but uh, some of them were not. But one thing we know to be true is the spiritual experience was shared by all of them as a family, as a community. And I would argue the same is true of the visible expression of the church today. The visible church is filled with people who have been made alive in Christ and who will persevere to the end, and the visible church is also filled with people who over the course of time will prove their faith to be lifeless. And it's possible for both to share in the experiences described in Hebrews chapter 10. To receive, quote, the knowledge of the truth. As many of of the Israelites received uh, the truth of the law, the knowledge of the law, and yet rebelled against it. So many within the visible church understand the gospel and yet reject it with rebellious hearts. They grab onto pseudo-gospels, maybe even. They grab onto a, a cultural form of Christianity because it's just what you do, but not the true gospel to be sanctified by the blood of the covenant in the language of chapter 10 here. Sanctified, verse 29, drives at the idea of being set apart as one of us. They sang songs about the blood of Jesus with us. They took communion, remembering the shed blood of Jesus with us. Yet over time, their life proved to be a profaning of that very blood. I said this in chapter 6. and I'll, I'll bring the language of chapter 10 to bear in the same way. You can just hear Jesus saying, On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not receive the knowledge of the truth? Did we not sing songs about the new covenant established in your blood, week in and week out? Did we not receive the cup representing your very shed blood? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is unbelievably sobering. Again, arguably one of the most sobering warnings in all of the New Testament. You probably have not heard it preached before. A lot of pastors don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But it's a warning that I would argue, particularly here in the Bible Belt in the South, is critical for us to to take into account. That a warning like this is is the appropriate warning for, for those who live in a culture in which church attendance is the norm. It's normative to gather with with people under the banner of the gospel. We should approach these verses with great sobriety of heart and and perhaps ask the question, am I among the saints but lifeless in my faith? Have I embraced a cultural form of Christianity, a, a nominal form of Christianity, Christianity in name alone but not truly changed by God's grace? One final question that I think is significant in a passage like this. What about those of us who do profess to be changed, born again, believers of Jesus Christ, Christ followers? Are we to apply these warnings in our lives? Are are these verses simply for the non-Christians who just happen to be hanging out with us this morning? Or, Or are these verses for us as well? And my answer to that question would be, yes and amen. These verses are absolutely for Christ followers. Why do I say that? Because the author of Hebrews, if you look ahead to verse 39, he's going to communicate that he's confident of better things for these people to whom he's writing. He says it this way, verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's doing the same thing he did in chapter 6. If you do this, then this is the outcome. But that's not you. That's not me. We're a people of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's He's confident of better things for these people. Yet when he sits down to write this letter to a crowd that he's confident will persevere to the end, he still includes the warnings. He sees value in providing sobering warnings to those he's confident will persevere. That the warnings, I would argue, are a means of God's grace to the church, to the saints. They compel us to keep beholding Jesus in all of his glory. In fact, if you keep seeing and savoring Jesus for who he truly is, like my daughter uh, saw and savored the moon night, night in and night out on our family vacation, if you keep seeing and savoring Jesus for who he truly is, you're not going to continue sinning deliberately, which according to the language of Hebrews 10 means a continual and definitive refusal to repent. If you keep seeing and savoring Jesus for who He truly is, you're not going to trample on, kick dirt on the Son of God. If you keep seeing and savoring Jesus for who He truly is, you're not going to profane His blood by deliberately rejecting the power of His blood to secure your redemption. If you keep seeing and savoring Jesus for who He truly is, you're not going to outrage, to insult, to mock, to blaspheme the Spirit of grace. In other words... Those who truly see and savor Jesus Christ will not reject the person and work of Jesus Christ. And those who truly see and savor Jesus Christ will not reject the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Again, we have to remember the sin that the author of Hebrews is trying to keep this battle-inflicted congregation from committing. It's the sin of apostasy, of returning to the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, leaving Jesus, declaring that Jesus' sacrifice cannot atone for sin. He wants us to never stop fixing our eyes on Jesus. And part of his strategy is to infuse warnings in his very writing. But there's good news. Not just warnings, but promises as well. Look at how he closes out this chapter. He says in verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's saying, you saw Jesus as better than anything this world could possibly afford you. You've joyfully endured suffering for the sake of the gospel. You've come alongside other sufferers for the sake of the gospel. You've fought the good fight of faith. I don't know about you, but when I look at verses 32 through 34, I find this to be good medicine for my soul. I mean, it does two things at the same time. One, it humbles me big time, but it also encourages me. On the one hand, this passage reminds me that I have a long way to go in my journey as a Christ follower. I don't know about you, but I struggle to joyfully, to use the language of these verses, I struggle to joyfully face far less significant challenges in life than the plundering of my property. How about you? How easy is it for you to be stripped of your joy? These words from the author of Hebrews are incredibly humbling. Yet, at the same time, this passage reminds us that we can look back in the past and remember the moments when God has sustained us. What a glorious passage for the, the last day of 2017. Right? You can look back on, on the other 364 days and look at those God-did-it moments. And you can marvel at the sustaining grace of God in that way. If He sustained us then, surely He will sustain us now. And so these verses are both humbling and encouraging. They have a, a past, a present, and a future aspect to them. The, the fight for joyful endurance is a fight to remember the sustaining grace of God in the past. It's a fight to keep seeing and savoring Jesus Christ in the present. And it's also a fight to believe that the glories of the age to come in the future are worth persevering now. He goes on to say, in closing out this chapter, verse 35, Therefore. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and now he quotes Habakkuk, yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39, but... We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Again, the Christian life is not a life of easy believism. It's a life of persevering to the finish line. What what is the doing of the will of God in verse 36? Don't we all want to know the answer to that question? Lord, what's your will? I want to do your will. What is your will, God? Well, according to verses 38 and 39, doing the will of God is ultimately living by faith. Verse 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. Verse 39, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's a, per, it's a persevering to keep hoping, to keep trusting in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Day in and day out. I said this in chapter 6 and I'll say it again. I really do mean this. Whether you believe that you can lose your salvation by failing to persevere or that you were never a Christian in the first place if you failed to persevere to the end. Either way, the takeaway is one and the same. Persevere. Right? If you believe you can lose your salvation, what do you do? You fight tooth and nail to see and savor Jesus Christ until he returns or the day you die. And if you believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, what do you do? You persevere by continuing to see and savor Jesus Christ until he returns or the day you die. That far from being a passage that divides the church, a passage like this actually has the power to unite the church, to rally the saints together in the name of a common cause. And that common cause is the commitment to fight for and with one another to see and savor Jesus Christ. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of in 2018. I don't know about you. Many who read passages like this, there's a danger. You can very easily go into navel-gazing mode. You can look at yourself a little too long, I would say. that that For some of us, we we walk away from chapters like Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, uh, looking for some kind of assurance based on what we see in the mirror. And I would say that's not at all what the author of Hebrews wants us to ultimately do. Sure, he wants us to to have those moments of introspection, but ultimately the goal is is not to keep looking in the mirror. It's to keep basking in the superior son of God. It's to look at Jesus. Isn't he glorious? Look at Jesus. Isn't he worth it? You're going to wake up tomorrow. I have no idea what the first day of 2018 is going to bring your way. But my guess would be that for many of us, we're going to have a number of moments in the new calendar year where we're going to have to ask that question, is Jesus worth it? Is he really that glorious? And the persevering follower of Christ declares over and over and over again, he really is. Even in this, Jesus is enough. Wouldn't it be nice to have an example or two of what that looks like? Uh, here's the beauty of the book of Hebrews, we get that, it's called chapter 11. When we come back around in, in February, we're, we're going to hit the pause button for a few weeks again to look at this series on the church, but then we're going to pick right back up where we left off, Hebrews chapter 11. One of the most famous verses in all of scripture, many of you, you've written it on a, on a post-it note, you maybe even have it framed in your house, maybe a bumper sticker, I don't know. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's how we're going to launch part two of this series. We're going to relaunch this series with an intentional look at what faith really is. And we're going to take a look at faith at work in the lives of God's people throughout the ages. You will not want to miss that. It's going to be incredible. I've said this before. One of my favorite things about the new heaven and new earth is the fact that I get to span the generations and sit down and, and... and grab a meal, coffee, I don't know, I don't even care what's sitting in front of me, but to do that with the forefathers of the faith, and I'm not talking uh, the, the early, century or early church fathers, yes and amen to that part of church history, but I'm talking even going back to, to the days of Abraham, and, and the days that, uh, of the saints that were before him, and being able in the new heaven and new earth to talk about what faith was like in their day. We're going to get a chance to look at the lives of some of these people throughout the ages um, and and see how faith was at work in their lives. It's going to be really incredible. Let me close with one final thought this morning and then we'll continue to to worship uh, in a number of ways. Coming back to verse 31, the author of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. According to the author, for those who refuse to receive Jesus, falling into the hands of the living God is a quite dreadful thing. But if you're not a Christian this morning, man, I invite you. What a a great way to put a bow on 2017, to turn to Jesus right now, this morning, with nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith. That's all you bring to the table. Jesus has done everything necessary for you. He lived the sinless, obedient life that you could never live, that I could never live, in our place. He died the sinner's death that you and I deserve to die on our behalf. His sacrifice, as we've talked about for chapters now in this book of the Bible, His sacrifice is sufficient for you. And So I invite you to come to Him now in prayer to receive Him as Savior and Lord. Now, one way, another way we could say it, may your first breath of 2018 Regardless of who you are in this room, be one of a worshiper of Jesus Christ. That's my hope. For those of us who do trust in Jesus, know this. Falling into the hands of the living God is not at all dreadful. Those very hands are our hope. According to uh, John Richard Moreland, I love these words, he says, the hands of Christ seem very frail, for they were broken by a nail, But only they reach heaven at last, whom these frail, broken hands hold fast. The anchor holds, church. If your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus, then you're in unbelievably good hands. You're in the hands of the exalted high priest of the universe, the one who ministers for you in heavenly places. Be encouraged in that as we leave this place and close the books on 2017.